Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Subscribe to Inclusion Revolution Radio, wherever you can get podcasts. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest-drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before... You need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. This is a podcast from Minute Media. Derek Jeter! This is the Yanks Go Yard Podcast with Adam Weinrib and Thomas Carinante. Welcome to a Monday edition of the Yanks Go Yard podcast. I'm Adam Weiner. Thomas Carinante will be joining in a bit. And while we will eventually go to the live stream that we did on Monday afternoon to talk about the White Sox, the weekend series, everything that mattered about how Josh Donaldson made the Sox as angry as any player has made them this year and how it felt great to continue this hot 25-9 and start. That will be in the middle of this episode. We are going to start with a very special interview, courtesy... Of the breathless campaign, we were able to speak with Yankees legend Bernie Williams about his experience with the dynastic Bombers and, of course, his experience with the campaign as well. Uh, We dove deep into it, obviously. A dream to talk to literally Bernie Williams. Uh, It does not get better than that for us fans, fans of a certain age, and all Yankee fans. Honestly, if you did not watch Bernie's career, please go ahead and enjoy the highlights as clutch as they come, best switch hitter since Mickey Mantle, and an integral part of those Yankees teams. So without further ado, if you are looking for commentary on this weekend's games, cut to the middle. But folks, why would you want to do that? Just listen to us talk to Bernie Williams. We are here with Bernie Williams, um, and it's not often that we get the chance to talk to somebody who's on my shirt. Um, that's really not something, an opportunity that comes across every day. Uh so trust us, Bernie, we are extremely thankful, and thank you so much for joining us. We want to start off by asking you about something that we know is near and dear to your heart, 
I know you're here courtesy of the Breathless campaign. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work with the campaign? Yeah, Breathless campaign. Uh, it's, uh, for me, it's about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's a rare lung disease that took the life of my father in 2001. Uh, and uh, about five years ago, I uh, teamed up with uh, Behringer Ingelheim uh, in this campaign called Breathless to just to raise awareness about this uh, this rare disease, uh, and uh, you know, th- there's you know, a lot of things to talk about it. But in a nutshell, is uh, basically uh, you know, they've got a lot of cases uh, for this uh, disease that have been happening, you know, during the uh, the last you know couple of years, uh, and uh, uh, it's you know, unfortunately, it is a terminal disease. Uh, but a lot of the symptoms uh, of uh, IPF, which is what you know, we kind of call it, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, can be related. To, uh, and they can be confused by other illnesses, you know, like COPD and, and asthma and uh, bronchitis. So I think, you know, part of the uh, main objective of this uh, campaign is just to uh, encourage people to see the doctor right away if they're finding symptoms of this uh, disease, which uh, may include a, a consistent and a, a constant a dry cough, uh, uh, you know, like fatigue uh, or, you know, tiredness, you know, things that you are kind of like uh, sort of take for granted, you know, like walking up the stairs or, you know, having a, a casual walk. If you're starting to feel tired or fatigued, that might be an indication that you may have an IPF. So we're encouraging people to, uh, you know, visit their doctor because uh, uh, they can refer you to a lung specialist. And those are the people that may be able to uh, uh, determine whether or not you have IPF. I mean, for sure, they will, they will be able to determine whether or not you have IPF because you definitely don't uh, want that in your life. And, uh, yeah, it has been a, a really great campaign. Uh, we uh, has given me an opportunity to talk a lot about, you know, uh, my father, which was my hero and uh, the guy that really started me playing baseball and playing music and all that stuff. So uh, it has been a, a really uh, great thing for me to be a part of. That's amazing. And we know, especially nowadays, health is the most important. You got to stay on top of that stuff. Um, and uh, just so, I mean, the, the listeners can get, can get an idea of, of your father's experience. What was, how was that like with him and, and what did he specifically deal with, with, um, with uh, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? Yeah, he, he, by the time he was uh, sort of diagnosed correctly, uh, he was uh, too, sort of too late in the run. Uh, uh, and he, you know, there's not, there was not a lot that they can do for him. Uh, and uh, he, he was really devastated to see him uh, go through it. Uh, he definitely took it like a champ. Uh, he never complained. Uh, he was definitely my hero. And especially, uh, you know, going through that, he was uh, even more inspiring. Uh, the fact that, you know, he uh, was able to uh, take this uh, journey and part of his life with a lot of dignity. And uh, uh, it was really hard. Uh, you know, it's just basically your lung uh, capacity to breathe uh, gets diminished every day until uh, there's a point that you cannot breathe anymore and then you kind of pass away. So uh, it is uh, it was really, really hard to see him go through it. But at the same time, it has given me an opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, celebrate his life and how important he was for me by being part of this campaign and uh, really uh, raising awareness about this uh, really devastating disease. And you are playing the national anthem tonight ahead of the A's Twins game as, as a way of raising that awareness. 
And, you know, we know you as certainly someone who's distinguished themselves as an accomplished musician during your playing career, after your playing career. Um, and I know your father inspired your music career, too. So I- I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah, yeah. My dad was the first uh, person that really inspired me to play an instrument. And at the time, uh, he uh, was a merchant marine and he had retired and uh, basically settled down in Puerto Rico. And from his trips, he already had a, a Spanish guitar that he used to play every night. Uh, he sort of taught himself how to play. Uh, and, uh, you know, we basically would listen to him, you know, at, at, at bedtime when we were, you know, seven, eight years old. Uh, and uh, one of those nights, I actually asked him if he could uh, teach me, you know, to play a little bit. Uh, and he he was uh, he was kind of surprised, but he sort of went ahead. And, uh, you know, from that moment on, I really uh, uh, developed this great love for music, uh, especially for the guitar. And, uh, uh, you know, I started taking lessons and then I went to a performing arts high school. And then uh, eventually I started playing baseball, but I never really left music it became a really important part of my life. I used to take my guitar to road trips, you know, plane trips. You know, I used to sit behind Derek uh, in back of the plane, uh, playing, and it would be like, dude, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sleep here. You know, let me, you know, let, let me, let me sleep. And I said, I always have to. On a good day, I would catch him, uh, and he would, you know, sing sing a little bit with me. But uh, you know, most of the time, it was, you know, it's kind of like a. Uh, Kind of like the way that I was able to relax, you know, from from the game and uh, you know, kind of get distracted, if I, especially if I was having a bad time, uh, you know, from a slump or something like that. It was something that would take me away for for a little bit, uh, give it me a chance to regroup and reset and uh, get back at you know the next day, you know, hopefully refresh, you know, mentally. Uh, so it, it was it has always been something that I've been able to do, uh, and uh, even more now when I retired, I went. Uh, to a, a music school in, in New York, Manhattan School of Music, and I was able to graduate with a, a full bachelor's degree on, on uh, jazz performance. So like they say in New York, now I'm just another cat looking for a gig. Uh, <laughs> but but it's, uh, it has been a, a really a, a great blessing in my life, you know, going, uh, you know, to sort of being able to uh, exist in these both worlds, you know, in the world of sports, obviously playing with the Yankees, and now later on in my life being able to uh, – uh, do this thing with music has uh, opened a lot of doors and great opportunities for me. So uh, uh, it's, it's been a blessing. That's beautiful. Um, and Bernie, can you do us a favor and, and, and uh, let, let our listeners and all the people out there know where, where can they uh, go to learn more about Breathless and um, IPF? Yeah, there's a website. I mean, uh, my website, uh, 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 Bernie51.com. Uh, I believe that's, you know, the latest one. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you should just Google Bernie Williams. There should be a website there uh, that would link you to a website called longsandyou.com. And uh, there is definitely a, a great source of information about idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF. You can find uh, information about, you know, doctors, caretakers, patients that are going through, uh, you know, uh, this process. And uh, just to let people know that they're not alone, you know, that there's a lot of uh, information out there uh, with uh, options, uh, you know, about, you know, how to get, uh, you know, the best possible treatment, uh, you know, at this time for this disease and, uh, uh, you know, uh, enhance the quality of your life and uh, uh, and maybe lengthen the quality, you know, lengthen your life, you know, uh, in some instances, you know, there's a lot of options out there that they should, you know, they should know. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for laying that out. Um, that's, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't know much before we started talking to you. And I feel like now we're 
very informed and there's so much more to, to dive into and, and people should definitely be aware if they encounter these symptoms, if they encounter things like this, obviously respiratory symptoms, uh, people are more acutely aware of now than they have been in the past. So, um, yeah, we really, really appreciate you dropping by to, to give us all this updated information and, and keep us informed. Um, now, you know, you are someone I've been waiting to speak to and Thomas has been waiting to speak to for basically our entire lives. We have an endless list of questions about the New York Yankees. We will cut them off at a certain point. Uh, we will not bother you for too long. We appreciate your time. Um, but let's let's sort of start at the beginning of your Yankees career, because so many people associate you, of course, with with Jeter and Mo. And, and you mentioned bothering Jeter on on planes. Um, we assume your relationship goes deeper than that. But, you know, Posada and Andy Pettit all these great Yankees of the nineties, you were in the bigs before they were, you were sort of, uh, you know, the early part of that wave of, of reaching the major leagues uh, and they were still joining the Yankee system. What did you know about these guys in the minors before they got called up? Like, what did you know about Derek and, and Mo when you were sort of a young Yankee in the Bronx? Yeah. I mean, I, I like, uh, every other prospects or, or big players that we have playing in the minors, you always keep your ears and your eyes open you know for all you know like you know who's the hottest prospect you know who who are the guys kind of like on their way up uh and you see their you know the stats and how they're doing uh and there's always a, a lot of rumors about uh, mariano and and andy pettit and jorge posada and uh Derek jeter but uh, i probably i'd be remiss if i don't go a little bit back uh, uh rewind a little bit Prior to my, you know, going into the big leagues, there were a lot of people there that sort of paved the wave. Uh, I think it was after uh, this incident with uh, uh, Mr. Steinbrenner that he got suspended. Uh, it's something that happened with Dave Winfield or something, I recall. Uh, it was, um, you know, he, he was sort of uh, out of the, uh, the normal operations of the team for a period of time. And I think around that time, uh, Mr. Gene Michael, uh, Gene Michaels, you know, uh, and a lot of the people in the front office started really taking a closer uh, look at their minor league system. So before I came up, uh, you know, there were people like Hensley Mullins, you know, there were people like Kevin Moss, you know, Oscar Asakar, Andy Stankowitz. I don't know if you even remember these names, but Andy, Jim uh, uh, Laritz, you know, Pat Kelly. Uh, these are people that sort of, you know, sort of started the wave of, you know, guys like me and the Jeters and the, and the Pettits to come in after that, because I think those people gave the Yankees, you know, the notion that there were a lot of good players uh, in the minor league system and they didn't have to trade them to get, you know, uh, you know, the, the sort of veteran uh, type players that they were getting in the 80s and maybe the, the first part of the, the 90s. Uh, so I give them a lot of credit to give these people the opportunity to come and those were the people that sort of paved the way for people like me to go in. I started going into uh, uh, sort of getting into my, my, uh, my, you know, sort of position in the team in 91, 92, and then 93. They traded for uh, Paul O'Neill uh, and then sent Roberto Kelly to, uh, to Cincinnati. And that, that was probably the time that I, they just sort of said, okay, this is your position to lose. And they gave me that opportunity to uh, – sort of grow into my position and the growing pains that are associated with that. Uh, I think I was very lucky to have the opportunity to do that growing process at a time that the expectations of the team weren't as good. 
I think, uh, you know, probably guilty of, of building that sort of set of expectations after the mid-90s when we kind of came into this sort of winning streak. But that, did, that, that would not have a chance to happen if, if uh, the Yankees didn't uh, really gave the players in the minor leagues the opportunity to sort of prove themselves. Uh, and uh, we were always, you know, kind of, you know, paying attention to what was going on uh, and, the, and the people that were, you know, basically on their way up. Uh, I remember 95 when uh, it was like the first wild card series and we had uh, Don Mattingly uh, having, you know, one of the best postseasons that he could ever have, you know, the only postseason that he had an opportunity to play uh, in 95. That was the time that we got uh, Derek and Jorge uh, just to, you know, like literally drink a cup of coffee in the big leagues. You know, they went there in the last month of the season and they were part of that run in 95. You know, we're like we devastatingly lost to Seattle uh, in the last game in, in 95 when Edgar Martinez hit that double down the line and uh, Gerald Williams would uh, recently pass away. Uh, you know, they made that relay, and then Griffey was able to score from third, well, from first, actually, the winning run. After that, I think uh, we we went through a lot of changes. Uh, Joe Torre became the manager of the team, and then uh, there was a question of shortstop. Uh, we who are we going to put in? Because Tony Fernandez, who was our shortstop at the time, was retiring, and they were trying to give you know somebody the position. And uh, Derek, you know, he was you know an unproven player was given the position, and I remember the first game he played in, uh, in Cleveland, he hit a home run. So, you know, that's kind of dissipated all the doubts about him, you know, being uh, able to play in the big leagues. Uh, and then, you know, even before that, you know, Mariano sort of followed, uh, you know, he was before him because they made him a, a reliever uh, because he was a starter. and He was lights out for the first three or four innings, and then, you know, it was light, lights on. <laughs> He <laughs> uh, was more of a, you know, they, he was kind of growing into his role as a, a, a perennial closer and then the best closer that the game has ever seen. Uh, and then you get, you know, guys like Posada that kind of came after that and, and Andy Pettit, obviously. Uh, so uh, it was a really great process to see it happen uh, in real time, uh, getting the, this influx of uh, players that you, you know, either heard of or were familiar with because of the minor, the, the minor league system has given them the opportunity to come up. Yeah. And enough about those guys, Bernie. 16, that, that all blossomed for you. 16 full years in the major leagues, all with the Yankees, folks. 297 career average, 858 OPS for everyone who likes stats. Uh, the advanced stats out there, 125 OPS plus. So you got a lot of memories and a lot of moments out there. So what do you, what do you think your, your true breakout moment was when, when you really arrived uh, in the show with the Yankees? I think it was probably at the end of the 95 season when we were playing against the Seattle Mariners. Uh, I think that was probably because I have already started playing full-time uh, since 93. In those two years prior to this uh, 95 season, we're kind of up and down. And I was, you know, going up and down. And there was a lot of rumors about me sending me down. Once I got out of options, you know, the rumor was, you know, they're going to trade me. I remember Bob Watson was the, the general manager at the time. And there was a deal in place, uh, apparently, me going to, uh, to Detroit for a Felix Fermin or something like that. You're trying to pave the way or trying to buy some time to get a shortstop and uh, so glad that that deal never came through. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, th those were the years where, where you were, it, it was very uncertain 
Uh, and I remember, you know, a, a person like uh, Ricky Lede that came up with the organization. And, uh, you know, the time that, you know, we were already had this sort of expectations going and he was traded and uh, he was one of the guys that I really feel for because uh, uh, I remember that the, the year he was traded and the, and the moment that he was traded in Detroit, and he was, he was sobbing and he was, he was crying because he felt this great connection to the team and all of a sudden, uh, he was no longer a, a part of it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it was just a really, really uh, hard time uh, to sort of get some sort of normalcy in your life because uh, at any point you were su subjected to being traded or being sent down, or especially if you have family, uh, you know, there was this sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, thing in, the, you know, in my stomach that was like, man, I, I better play well because I don't know, you know, what's going to happen. So uh, uh, those were kind of hard moments to sort of live uh, and uh, were, you know, part of my upbringing you know, try to establish myself as a, as a legitimate Major League Baseball player. Uh, and uh, I guess the rest was history. I mean, I had to hone down in my uh, skill uh, and uh, given the opportunity to play, you know, one of the most coveted positions in uh, baseball, which is a center fielder for the New York Yankees. I mean, I, I didn't really, uh, uh, I wouldn't say appreciate, but I didn't really realize the magnitude of the position that I was playing until, you know, a couple of years later when I started really uh, bearing down on, on the history and the tradition of all these great center fielders that have played before me, you know, from, you know, Dr. Mickey Rivers, you know, the Paul Blair to uh, DiMaggio, Mantle, and you just start mentioning all these names, Earl Combs. I mean, uh, it, it's, it, it was just incredible to see this sort of lineage that sort of landed in my feet. And I was like, wow, this is, not only a great job, but it's also a great responsibility to sort of keep this thing going. Uh, uh, and uh, it was just a, a great blessing in my life to be able to uh, maintain uh, and uh, be able to produce and be able to be at the right place at the right time uh, uh, in position to win all those championships. So it, it was just great. It's funny you mentioned Earl Combs because I always think of him as a comparison for your Hall of Fame case. And, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, but I, it's you guys are, I mean, Yankee center field lineage is incredible. Um, personally, I would love if you could just talk me through what is my personal favorite Bernie Williams moment of all time, which is the walk-off homer you hit in the 1996 ALCS against the Orioles, which is as far and as hard hit a walk-off home run in the playoffs as you will ever see. Now, what do you remember about that moment? Well, I do remember uh, just kind of going through the whole uh, game process, uh, the inning before. Uh, you know, I, you know, once you, uh, you know, you start going and you're going to the on deck circle, there's two outs and uh, there's an out, you know, that happens and you go into defense. So automatically you start thinking you're going to, you're going to, you're going to open up the inning, you know, you, you're going to be the leadoff guy next inning. Uh, so you got to start, you know, thinking about that at bat, you know, so, uh, you know, the inning happened, you know, the three outs, you know, coming into bat. Randy Myers, a you know, great reliever of the, of the Orioles at the time. Uh, and I just went into this battle with him. Uh, you know, it was good because he was on my most comfortable side at the time, which was my right side. Uh, so I remember him just kind of coming right after me and then throwing me sliders and fastball. I think I, I don't know what – I don't remember the count uh, and what it was, but I think it was a, a pitch that was sort of middle away that I was able to hook. Uh, and I was afraid that it was going to be foul. Uh, so once I hit it, I was like, you know, start, it was starting to hook. Uh, 
But uh, I was like, please stay fair, stay fair. It was one of those like uh, it was a cotton, uh, cotton fisk and and Fenway, you know, and without the without the hold, you know, try to make it fair, you know, with my hands. Uh, but once that happened, I think everything else. I don't even remember running the bases. Uh, you know, going through you know one base to the other. Uh, the stadium just uh, as loud as I've ever heard it. Uh, you know, sound. Uh, but I think you know. I would be kind of remiss to, to mention that none of that would have happened if, you know, the, the, the infamous, you know, Jeffrey Mayer moment <laughs> that gave, you know, that sort of gave way to that moment to happen where, uh, you know, obviously there was a lot of controversy about that home run, you know, when Derek hit it and he t- sort of tied up the game. And then he sort of opened the opportunity to me for me to do, to perform at, at that, at that moment. Uh, that was, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, kind of like my coming of age into this sort of uh, sort of playoff kind of, you know, uh, mentality that we were going to go there and that we were going to uh, take, you know, uh, you know, take uh, uh, charge. And uh, it really set the tone on all those years where, where uh, we were, you know, we were put in a good position to produce and we had a great team that, you know, was able to lean on each other and uh, the rest was history. Amazing. And yeah, speaking, you know, you're, I've always wanted to ask somebody in your position, you know, for someone who had such a great career and played during the height of the steroid era. Now we're in this whole new um, kind of modern era where uh, a lot of players who have played during that era, who are even associated with steroids are not considered in the hall of fame voting. Um, so I, I, I want your take on this. Like, do you think those people, anyone associated should be excluded um, do you think any offenders should be let in? Do you think fringe Hall of Famers who performed very well and never tested positive or were never um, considered uh, or, or, or who were never associated should be considered? Because I've always viewed you as a guy who who exceeded expectations in an era where, you know, you were kind of disadvantaged based on what what was going on in the game. So how do you feel about all that? Well, I think, you know, I, I've got uh, I had an opportunity to think about all those things, you know, after I retired. Uh I think that, you know, it, it, it's really cool that I am in, that, in those conversations when they talk about uh, people that were not linked in any way to uh, PEDs uh, and, um, you know, were able to perform. Uh, I think I was very blessed to have a great team. I think, you know, if you look at uh, my numbers uh, on any other team, you know, they, they will be kind of normal, but the fact that I was able to contribute in, in, in a good part to the success of that kind of run that we had, it kind of puts me in the map. Uh, as far as the, uh, uh, you know, the people that actually did it, you know, you, I, you can never be able to judge uh, the reasons, uh, you know, the circumstances, uh, the amount of, you know, things that they did or, or whoever. You can only judge yourself for what you did and the decisions that you made. Uh, and with that said, I would say, you know, I was able to kind of like look in the mirror now, maybe 12, 15 years after I retired. And I, I could say, hey, you know, I have no regrets. I did it the right way. I, you know, didn't use any of, of that thing, uh, those those things. And I was able to perform to the best of my ability. Maybe my numbers may not be as good as some of the other people that were might might have been linked to, to that. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it is a journey that I went through and I have no regrets, man. I, you know, the, the amount of uh, uh, friends and relationship that I've, the relationships that I've fostered through my career, uh, 
the awesome time that I had playing all, all those postseasons uh, and the camaraderie that I had with my teammates and uh, that overall experience that I had, you know, playing uh, one of the best teams in professional sports is something that nobody can take away from me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I would leave it to, up to, you know, whoever the people that have to decide, you know, whether or not people in my position have a shot to make those decisions. I mean, it'll be a great bonus and a, kind of an icing on the cake. It'll be uh, an incredible thing to happen. So I'm not trying to say that it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. It does mean a lot. But uh, I am trying to focus on other things that, that will keep the pressure off or the stress out of really, uh, you know, dwelling on something that I have completely no control over. So uh, I think that, you know, at some point, you know, uh, things may change or they may not. I think, you know, uh, people are, you know, especially the writers are making a point to address this in, in the way that they can. There's so many great areas about, you know, this uh, PEDs use in uh, uh, so many levels of uh, culpability, I guess, uh, you know, from the front offices, you know, to the people that were responsible, to the people that made the decision to do it, that, uh, you know, Major League Baseball that sort of over uh, overlooked this for years until, you know, the Congress or the, or the government got involved and say, hey, you got to stop this. You know, uh, it wasn't legal at the time, you know, that some of these people, you know, some of the things that they did. So uh, the only thing that I can control is the fact that, I, you know, I'm thinking that I was able to perform and I said, I'm not going to do this and I'm going to prove to you that even if you are doing it, I'm going to beat you at your game uh, and I'm going to try to play to the best of my ability. And more times than not, I was able to, to perform, you know, uh, even if they threw 104 miles an hour, they still have to throw it through the zone. You know, I still have to, you know, uh, get the bat through the zone. And I still have to hit the ball. So uh, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, controversy about these things. And I think time will tell, uh, you know, uh, whether or not these, you know, writers and people that are responsible to making these decisions will have a change of heart. But uh, it is something that, you know, uh, it, it will be great if it happens and I'm considered. Uh, but uh, I, I still will consider it, you know, like icing on the cake on a, on a great career that I was so fortunate to be a part of. Yeah. And no matter how things turn out, you know, at least we are getting the chance to celebrate your era of Yankees baseball a lot in Cooperstown these days. Mariano made it unanimous. Jeter, one vote short. And we all have a personal message for whoever that person was. I'm sure, sure you yeah. do. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Well, what's he thinking? <laughs> <laughs> but you got a great weekend out of it. You got a great weekend out of it. Um, and, and, you know, obviously we are rooting for you. Um, we will wrap with this. We'll let you go. Um, obviously, it's very difficult to pick. Um, you know, World Series champions in 96, 98, 99, 2000. Uh, and you play in the 2001, 2003 World Series, too. I mean, an overload of these incredible seasons. Did one Yankees World Series title mean more to you than the others during your time in the Bronx? Uh, if so, why? And and obviously, if not, you know, sort of how do they all blend together into telling your story? Well, I think I can approach that question in many different ways. But I think, you know, the one way that I will approach it is, you know, something that I've said uh, a couple of times when I've been asked this, I think all the World Series in my mind have a very special place in my heart. Uh, from the first one in 96, where we were heavily uh, underrated, playing with uh, arguably one of the best rotations in the history of the game, you know, with the Atlanta Braves when they had Smalls and Glavin and, and Maddox and Avery and all those guys. Uh, and then playing uh, in 2000 against the Mets, 
you know, the whole Subway series and all of them in between, I have, uh, uh, you know, they have a special place in my heart, but I will throw you a curveball. I think the one series that I was part of that gives me the uh, most of my, uh, you know, pride for being a part of is the 2001. Uh, 9-11 was something that was, uh, you know, a, a historic part of the uh, part of this uh, this country. Uh, and uh, it was a great tragedy. And it just happened, it just happened in, in the midst of uh, baseball. So it was up to baseball to to uh, sort of have this role of giving uh, the people in this country some sense of normalcy, uh, a, a way to distract themselves even for a couple hours from what we were going through as a nation. And uh, even though we came one out short of winning this series, I still consider that the role that we play as team, you know, we as, as uh, you know, as much as the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks in bringing uh, this sort of sense of normalcy and, and uh, uh, you know, bringing a smile to the faces of, of the people that were, you know, fans of the game at that moment in time uh, could not make me feel any prouder of being an American, of being part of this country and being able to uh, be a part of that role, uh, you know, in what baseball meant to the United States at that time in 2001. So I always say that my favorite series, even if I didn't win, is that one because of the role that we had that, that we took at that moment. Incredible. We, I mean, yeah, we, we love that. Believe us. We, we appreciated what you did for us that year, all the other championship years. Um, 2001 meant a lot to us too. It feel, you know, thanks for saying that. And, and it feels good to be able to say that to you. Um, Bernie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we love spending this time with you and, and obviously one of the sweetest switch hitting swings of all time, uh, will never be replicated. Um, and yeah, you meant a lot to us growing up and, and we thank you for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much, Bernie. Oh my God. So much. Uh, so grateful, man. Thank you so for taking the time to invite me and for having me there and uh, for, to, to talk about, you know, breathless and, and all of that. So I'm very grateful. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. Welcome on in to a Monday live edition of the Inks Go Yard podcast. I'm Adam Weider, alongside Thomas Carinante. Not only are the New York Yankees the best team in baseball, they're the only good team in baseball. None of the other teams are good. The White Sox, bad. Blue Jays, horrible. Tampa Bay Rays, fine, not good. Cleveland Guardians, pretty good. Dodgers, can't beat the Phillies at home. Got lucky in the fourth game. Giants, all right. Carlos Rodon got knocked around by the juice balls on Sunday Night Baseball. Albert Pujols pitched. Not great. The New York Yankees are the only good baseball team. The New York Yankees and the New York Rangers are the only good sports teams. And I think that's very interesting. Now, we've experienced baseball seasons and sports seasons in the past. Is everything going to come crashing down around us at some point? Yeah. Probably not permanently. But things will get worse. But I raise you this. Why talk like you're ready for things to get worse when things are still good? So we're going to give you the podcast about the Yankees taking three out of four from the Chicago White Sox. We're going to give that to you now on the road. Chicago, pretender, not contender. Josh Donaldson, agitator, made fans leave the baseball game on Thursday when he extended the lead to 14-7. Fans go bye-bye. Fans leave stadium. Uh, fans walk home. Uh, maybe not walk home in that. I, it's a dangerous neighborhood. They should definitely get in a car or an Uber. But fans immediately leave stadium thanks to Josh Donaldson. Uh, 
even though the Yankees are the only baseball team without 10 losses on the season, Brian Kenny still getting on MLB Network to talk about how getting Giancarlo Stanton was a bad idea. And Nestor Cortez uh, should be starting the All-Star game, will be starting the All-Star game uh, if I have anything to do with it, which I don't, um, but is the best pitcher in the American League and, and also has been since like the start of 2021. So it's time to start talking about that in addition to the reason he is no longer on Twitter. Uh, Thomas Carinante, what what more is there to say? I mean, I mean, is anybody tuning into this podcast to listen to us be like wary of the start or, or is the world just ready for us to be like uh, the New York Yankees are 25 and nine? Because I'm going to keep starting the podcast with the record as long as it's this insane. The New York Yankees are 25 and nine. The haters can't tune in anymore. It's it's unfortunate um, because we that, that's how we we're making a lot of our money uh, in the beginning. It was a lot of hate Yankees content. Yeah, um, yeah. And. I, you couldn't blame anybody for talking bad about the Yankees these last couple of years. It was miserable. But now, I, like you said before, I think people are starting to gear up and protect themselves from the eventual regression or I guess whatever you want to call it, which also may not ever happen. Uh, we just watched a we just watched a we watched a flawless season from the San Francisco Giants last year. Obviously, they fell short in the playoffs, but regular season wise, coast to coast. You're sitting there. You're like, when is this going to stop? It doesn't stop. You have the Red Sox 2018 season, 108 wins, not a, an issue in the postseason at all. So it's possible this doesn't end. The Yankees, this is what people have been expecting them to achieve and accomplish for the better part of five years now. Um, so for people to be like, oh, I'm not buying this is, okay, you don't like the Yankees, which is fine. And two, you haven't been watching this team enough to understand the roster construction and the past efficiencies that have been patched up to make all of this possible right now. Um, so we should be positive. This is an incredible run that we're seeing at the moment. Um, and even when the offense is not performing um, as it did so often last year, uh, the pitching is there to pick it up. The Yankees can get away with scoring three runs a game if they, if they so need to. Um, three runs nearly did it on – three runs would have done it on Saturday had Chapman not blown it. Um, three, uh, three runs was going to do it on Sunday before Gallo's ninth inning home run, which provided two hits, goals. two yeah. hits yesterday. And they won the baseball game and they yeah. scored five runs. So, yeah. I mean, a, a gift wrapped couple of runs there, but yeah, it, you want to talk about how to win in this year's offensive environment, scoring five on two hits, taking advantage of a pitcher who can't find the strike zone. That's a whole new way to win. Like for the people who are like, all they do is hit homers. They had two hits. One went 400 feet. And they won five one. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I mean, I I watched that, and you that one. You're like, oh, this offensive performance sucks. But Nestor Cortez is throwing a gem. He throws eight innings, strikes out seven, incredibly efficient. So you're there. There's some enjoyment on on from from the viewing perspective that there wasn't last year because the pitching staff would pitch well last year, but they wouldn't have any sort of protection in the form of one or two runs. And then you're kind of sitting on pins and needles, being like. Okay, great. When's Cole giving up the home run ball? When, when are we gonna When are we gonna give up this lead in the seventh inning? Or when's Chad Green coming in? We know this is happening. There's not enough run support here, um, and we you simply have to give this team the props. Um, we, we there are there are flaws here and there. Um, we don't need to talk about them. We don't need to magnify that. Um, we will keep them in the back of our mind for when. Uh, things maybe go south or maybe the Yankees need to make some additions at the trade deadline or they need to do some roster tinkering in-house. Um, you don't know what can happen. Uh, we're, we're, we're five, six weeks into the season. 
Um, but the results have been there. This is this is what the fans have been waiting to see for long, a longer than a month stretch. And we finally got it. And one thing that I did learn this weekend, and I'm not coming down on White Sox fans, but I don't think the White Sox are that good. And it's funny because White Sox fans on Twitter were talking about, hey, you know, Red Hot Yankees came into town. They're playing great. Gave us the props, which I respected. But then they're like, oh, and talk to us again when we're at full strength, when we have Lance Lane, Lucas Giolito, and Eloy Jimenez back in the lineup. Well, okay, um, Lance Lynn's been out since the beginning of the season. He had a knee issue. That he, he underwent surgery. Uh, I think, what, he's out till the All-Star break or something. Um Giolito has already made five starts and he just wasn't pitching for the Yankees series. So I don't understand how that really factors into much of anything. And Eloy Jimenez has been there for 11 games uh, so far this year, which obviously is not enough, but he was there. You saw the, you saw what the lineup looked like with him in it. And the results for the White Sox have largely been consistently not great. 16 and 17, the rest of the roster, if you look at it on paper, that roster is supposed to get by without a couple of good people. Um, and so often have Yankee fans been in the same position where Judge or Stanton's hurt, or uh, maybe it was DJ, maybe it was Luke Voigt, maybe it was Glaber not, maybe it was Glaber, uh, maybe not hurt, but just like what's going on with him? We don't we don't know what's happening. Um, Gio Urshela was hurt last year. Aaron Hicks has been hurt for the better part of three years now. Um, so the list goes on and on. And Yankee fans, I don't think. I mean, maybe there are ones out there, but I think the logical ones rarely ever make excuses for injuries because you know the name of the game in baseball. You need to have a good team. You need to have proper depth and you need to have the right players um, uh, picking up the team in the right spot. So if you ask me, I don't think if you're if you're if you're constructing a contender, I do not think missing two to three, maybe even four guys, unless they're all your top players, should really factor into a below 500 start in the middle of May. So I think because of that right now. Yeah. Yes. It, it's, it's just, you, you know what? Yankee fans aren't allowed to do what other fans are allowed exactly. to do. Apparently. Like I, I think, you know, the, the 2019 Yankees persevered through a million injuries every week. There was another injury. Even the second line of defense got hurt. Cameron may been like ripped his hamstring up scoring. Uh, you know, every, every week you, you turn around and somebody else was going down. They won 103 games. And ultimately, they lost in the ALCS because they lost Giancarlo Stanton one more time. And that ended up being the difference between them and the Astros. And eventually, the Astros went on a run, took some home games at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees didn't quite have enough pitching either. Tanaka, big game Tanaka on short rest. It was terrible. And, and yeah, four. It is what it is. They, the Yankees lost a, an ALCS series. But they did manage to win 103 regular season games with injury after injury after injury, without losing Stanton in game one, I have no idea if that series goes the way that it does. Um, it, you know, we whined about injuries that year because it's frustrating to watch the lineup change every day and all of a sudden Mike Talkman is your cleanup hitter. And, and you've got guys, Tyro Estrada is playing every day. People you never expected to see are playing huge roles for this team because you're losing the marquee names. And we complained about it. And people said, shut up, get a life. And we went, understood, duly noted. And then they, again, won 103 games. The White Sox are missing some big names. They also have plenty of big names on the roster. And like you said, Giolito's not even out. He just didn't pitch in this series. Yeah, He's battled stuff on and off. He's made comebacks. But the White Sox are not far from full strength at this point. Andrew Vaughn is back. Gavin Sheets, who's a fill-in type, is mashing the baseball. Is probably the best hitter I I saw this weekend. Non-Tim Anderson, Luis Robert division. 
there's a there's enough big names there to win baseball games and to have the same records the Cleveland Guardians just does not hold water at this point and you mentioned this <coughs> with the whole like uh you know the Yankees are finally performing up to snuff and people are looking for reasons why it's eventually going to stop happening after two years of people saying, I don't understand why you're complaining. You have the best roster in baseball. You're going to eventually bounce back to them. It's like, it's just two sides of the same coin. People hate the Yankees. So that when the Yankees are struggling and we're like, the Yankees are struggling. They're like, shut up. You have an elite roster. There's too many big names on here. You're going to bounce back. You're going to get better. Like their regression's not real. And then when the Yankees are dominating, it's like, where's the regression? It, they have to regress. These guys suck. Like, so what is it? Do we have the best record? Do we have the best roster in baseball? Or do we have a roster that's just desperately waiting to regress? The bullpen stuff is what I don't understand. We saw a lot of the haters be like, the bullpen has a collective X whatever ERA. There are three guys in the bullpen with ERAs under 1.65. That's bound to bounce in the opposite direction. Why? Pitching this year is better than ever. The Yankees bullpen has been their strength since 2019. If anything, Jonathan Lewisaga is bound to get better the metrics yeah. indicate that he's someone whose ERA is going to go down. Our oldest Chapman's will certainly be worse. And when the Yankees lose a game every two weeks or so, it looks exactly the same. It's because the game is tied late or our oldest Chapman has, he hasn't blown a save yet, but he's lost two of the Yankees nine games. So it, it's a basically a regular, you have a 25% chance of a Yankee loss being our oldest Chapman getting walked off at this point. Is that fun? Not really. And his numbers indicate he'll continue to, to go further back. You know, his, he's not getting better. The metrics indicate he doesn't throw strikes. He walks everybody and nobody chases his pitches out of the zone because they're not even close. He's, he's got a two. He's in the second percentile for walk rate. He walks everybody and he's in the 30th percentile for chase rate. Meaning he doesn't throw strikes and batters at the plate go. That's not a strike. And I'm not swinging at it because it's not masked. It's not disguised. It looks like nothing. That guy's got jack shit. So Aroldis Chapman will continue to regress to the mean probably but Jonathan Loisaga should get closer to the lower ERA number and other than Chad Green who, who's had his moments of, of struggle and doubt and pain this year I don't really know anybody like Clay Holmes's numbers line up perfectly with his peripherals Michael King's numbers line up perfectly with his peripherals Wani Peralta's barely pitched but when he has he's looked great um I'm not saying that the Yankees are guaranteed to end the season with a bunch of relievers under a 1.5 ERA but I know the bullpen's going to be good and I know they're probably going to add another high-impact arm at the deadline because that's what they do, whether it's an internal promotion, whether Ron Marinaccio figures it out, whether Steven Ridings comes back healthy, whether they do make a trade. Because if they do make a trade, the easiest person to obtain is an underrated bullpen asset. They did it last year with Holmes. They didn't compete at the top of the market. They weren't going out <laughs> and trying to get Archie Bradley and paying three top prospects. They went and got Clay Holmes for Hoy Park, and he's their best reliever. Uh, and also just the idea that like you can't possibly have this many bullpen arms under a certain ERA. Bullpen arms end seasons with like 1.2 ERAs all the time. That the best bullpen arms in baseball, their ERAs are super low. That's just that's kind of how yeah. relief works. Like might not be the case next year, but it would not be out of the question for two Yankees to have low one four ERAs out of the bullpen. It's not going to be Chapman. No. It could be Holmes and King. You just don't know. I mean, Loaiza could get down to the twos. It's it's plausible. It's fully possible. Um, so, yeah, for years, the Yankees battled this uh, inexplicable regression. And people said, you know, you're lying. You're not regressing. You'll be great. And then all of a sudden, they're 25 and 9. Everything's clicking. Joey Gallo has like a 150 WRC plus since the middle of April. 
He's on fire. He's hitting 266 over like 50 something at bats with power. And then all of a sudden it's like, this won't last. It can't last because already the inexplicable regression used to happen. So it will this year too. Uh, I would just like a consistent narrative from everybody. Well, the Yankees are going to lose some games at some point. The bullpen is going to blow some saves at some point. But none of that means that the team isn't what we're watching right now. It just means fans are going to be upset for 24 to 48 hours before being satisfied once again. Snack for good with Ohio-made, all-natural, super-tender Charkey Jerky Company Beef Jerky, now featuring Killian's Vintage with limited-edition packaging designed by 12-year-old Killian, avid golfer and patient champion, Nationwide Children's Hospital, now available at select Giant Eagle locations at the Memorial Tournament presented by Workday May 30th through June 4th and online at www.charkeyjerky.com. Proceeds of Killian's Vintage benefit Nationwide Children's Hospital and kids like Killian. You look at the flip side of this, too, like the White Sox after the game, they're answering these questions from the media, like what's going on? Well, what's, what's happening? Well, why, why is this still happening? You have a really good roster, and oh, you know, it's still early. They're 16 and 17. It's still, they're not wrong. It's still early. Yes. There's, can the narrative slip? Absolutely. Can, they, can both of these teams be in a similar boat come September? Absolutely. But if you're going to tell me the Yankees are going to – if the Yankees performing to the manner in which they are, they're going to regress and that they're them being good is not a big deal. Then how can you say that the White Sox ranking 27th in average, 26th in OPS, 29th in fielding percentage, 19th in ERA and 27th in walks allowed? Like, yeah, that's going to get better, but that doesn't have the makings of a contender to do to, to be deficient in all of those areas this early in the season. That's almost that's almost unheard of. Even when the Yankees were as bad as they were last year, they weren't ranking bottom in the league in like five or six major categories. It was like, yeah, they were. It was oscillating between one and another, and that's why they could never get get on track. But the White Sox are playing poorly on you know, on every front, uh, just just about. And the injuries, yes, have have played a minute role here, where they they can't maximize their full potential. But to to be struggling at this rate. After you've kind of, you know, you got enough baseball out of your system at this point to to figure out what might be wrong. I don't know if you could sit there and be like, oh, well, this is going to turn around. Our defense will all of a sudden be much better over the next few months. We'll stop all of a sudden walking batters, even though we have a really good anchor to the bullpen and a bunch of good starters. Like there's something there that needs to be figured out and there might not be an explanation for it. So I don't like how we're watching the results on the field from the Yankees be things that we have have anticipated and actual results from actual good production and everyone's like oh that should stop soon and then you look at the White Sox and they're like oh don't worry they'll get back on track even though x y and z is super concerning after six weeks of baseball so just figure out the narrative and and make it work for everybody please that's all the Yankees also own Liam Hendricks uh, more than any high leverage reliever I think I've seen in like 20 years it's insane uh, the, the amount of confidence I have when Liam Hendricks steps on the mat, it's, it's even more than like Matt Barnes. Like, <laughs> if you count him as a high leverage reliever, I don't know if I do. Uh, Red Sox, big extension candidate, Matt Barnes. Uh, congrats on that huge, huge deal. But uh, Liam Hendricks is objective. He's, he's like a top three reliever in the American League. And he's also somebody who, when I see him, I'm like, Yanks are going to work their way. They're, they're going to tie this game. I mean, it's just a matter of if they take a lead or not. The, the people they sent, uh, it was Gallo and Isaiah Connor Falefa in the ninth inning on, on Saturday, I think, to start off that inning. Like, I mean, Gallo, strikeout machine, you know, has been hot as of late, but you elevate a fastball to him, you can still get him. Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, 
made, I believe, 38 errors this series, tying him for second with Tim Anderson in in a four-game series. Uh, He was awful, you know, in the field, and he's not really a hitter to begin with. So you think he's probably going to take some of that to the plate. You know, other than IKF and Trevino or IKF and Higashioka, who was also in the three-hole that inning, there's basically no one I'd want up less than those Aaron Hicks. There's basically nobody I want up less than those two people to start off the inning. And what do you know? Lead-off walk doesn't fall for the up-and-in fastballs, and IKF lines on a right first and third and two seconds. And again, that's the only game the Yankees lost in the series was the one faced with a one-run deficit, Liam Hendricks on the mound. They erased that one-run deficit in a half of a minute. It, like, I just know they could do that now. And and I don't have confidence against basically any other high-leverage reliever. Uh, they're, they're good. They're good yeah. for a reason. It's difficult to beat them. Liam Hendricks comes in, I'm just like, it, it, it's it's even worse than Jonathan Papelbon back in the day. It still felt like it was like, <laughs> you, know, you could get him, you could get him, but it wasn't a given. Of it. Like, Hendricks is the easiest ninth inning path I've seen for the Yankees in quite a while. Uh, Ryan Presley and the Astros is right up there too. I feel like they could beat him, but Hendricks, that's, uh, that's who I want in the late innings of a, of a White Sox game more so than like the nasty lefties. Uh, and in terms of nastiness, this series did have its fair share from Nestor Cortez on Sunday, which we'll talk about in a little bit to Tim Anderson and Josh Donaldson. Why are they fighting? Uh, why does Tim Anderson always want to make every moment about him? I, uh, I love Tim Anderson. He's great for baseball. But this was a whole lot of nothing. And this Tim Anderson, Josh Donaldson tag at third may have been the lowest energy bullpen clearing of all time. It was yeah. just sort of like the bullpens couldn't even believe that this was about to be an incident where they had to go participate. They were like, oh. they, I mean, it's hard to get out of the bullpen onto the field. Sometimes you have to leap over the wall. You have to vault yourself. The bullpen was just like, I'm coming out because of the, there's a guy on third. He's not happy about being tagged. Like, is that really what we're focused on today? Um, but Anderson is under the Yankees' skin. He played a huge role in winning Saturday's game. Uh, he played a, a minuscule role in the other three games where the White Sox barely hit. He's one of the league stars. He is the most emphatic hitter on the White Sox. I would say Luis Robert is better. Um, but Tim Anderson is very consistent, and he made a role to Chapman look like nothing after that game basically said he felt comfortable hitting his 99 mile an hour fastball, which is what we've been saying all year, but it was nice to hear it from a major league player and a major league star. Uh, what do you make of the Donaldson Anderson incident? It's, it's also just especially funny because Donaldson has the upper hand, like, yeah. and it's indisputable. He hit a monster home run in Thursday's game. He hit a monster home run in Friday's game. Josh Donaldson ended two of these. He put two of these games out of reach. And then Tim Anderson's, you know, only the, the point in his column is he got tagged kind of hard and, and it didn't count and he was safe. So yeah. well, you got to remember Donaldson's history with the White Sox too. He played two years in Minnesota. Um, he got into it with uh, Lucas Giolito. Um, I don't entirely remember what it was, but they were trading barbs kind of like how Donaldson and Cole were trading barbs last year. Um, but that between him and Giolito was more high stakes because it was AL central opponents Um and uh, you know how that goes. Uh, it's much different when it's trash talking within the, in the division um, and it's after a certain result or it's after something happens. Um, and then you and then Liam Hendricks also had commented on uh, Donaldson. It was last season oh, yeah. as the fallout from Giolito and said that he he didn't like him when they played together in Oakland. Donaldson and Hendricks were both on the A's at the same time. So there is a clear 
there's a clear discord between Donaldson and the White Sox. And he's, I think he's a little bit in their head. It was funny watching uh, those two homers uh, from Donaldson. And then it immediately cuts to the stands and the fans are walking home. Um, Mm -hmm. But after that, look, the tag was the tag. If Donaldson did that to my team, I'd be like this fucking guy. Like I, this guy just doesn't stop. Like every, he's got to be involved in some capacity where he's pissing me off and it would anger me. But in the end, you look at it again, Trevino rifled one over to third. Donaldson's trying to get back to the bag to catch the ball and tag him. He puts his knee down to block the bag, and then his momentum just takes him into Anderson. Doesn't even hit him. It's harder than a normal tag, yes, because his body weight was involved, and he did hold it to apply it um, in the event uh, the ump would give him the benefit of the doubt had Anderson not got back in time or maybe his hand fell off the bag. Then Anderson gets up and shoves him, and then Donaldson's just like, what? I don't even understand what's going on now. And then everything clears. So it was, yeah, it was the lowest testosterone benches clearing that you'll probably ever see. Um, I, I think it, it's partially because Donaldson is in their head. Um, and Anderson is a guy who um, is going to respond to that person, regardless if the action from that person calls for it or not. So um, he knows White Sox fans hate Donaldson. He knows the rest of his teammates probably hate Donaldson. I'm sure he does not like Donaldson. Um, and he decided to make it a little high stakes there with the shove, um, which I'm not against. I mean, hey, if you feel like you were mistreated or you felt like someone was getting unreasonably physical with you, yeah, respond. Um, but when you watch the replay, um, I just think it was a bang, bang thing. Um, and Donaldson was doing all he can to get him out because Garrett Cole was getting into trouble in the bottom of the first. So what do you try to do? You try to pull out any of the stops to kill the rally or to avoid them putting a run on the board. Um, Cole battled back, struck out the batter to, uh, last batter to end the inning. So that was awesome too. Um, and then you heard uh, the fan. I don't know if you heard it on the live broadcast. Um, oh, yeah. Donaldson was stepping up the bat. Some fan told him to meet him in the parking lot. So it's clear the crowd hates him too. So he's in their head. Um, he's, he's, he's making an impact beyond the box score, which is, you know, the mental edge aspect of the game that we're always talking about. Once again, I like having this guy on my team. I, I don't want him. I don't want to ever play against him, but I want him on my team. It's, it's funny how it works. Interesting trade folks. Don't you like Josh Donaldson now? Uh, they, I mean, there was a, there, there was like an open mic all weekend. That was just like yeah. a freestanding microphone. Uh, you know, anybody who wants to come up, take a shot at the Yankees. Uh, and whoever, I don't know if it's the same guy all weekend, but whoever was doing it on Thursday night just kept getting burned. He called Stanton overrated. Stanton hit a two-run shot to start the scoring. He yelled, Josh, you suck, before Donaldson hit his three-run home <laughs> run late in the game to ice it. And then he obviously told Donaldson he wanted to fight him in the parking lot. on Friday. I don't know if it's the same guy. I don't know if it's a bad microphone situation. It obviously doesn't work. Whatever it is, if it's an intimidation tactic, it, it, it's for shit. It doesn't work at all. Um, Donaldson Giolito, by the way, uh, I, all I remembered was the visual last year. I remember Donaldson crossing the plate, like clapping, pointing and screaming after he hit a bomb. <laughs> Apparently it was, it was all sticky stuff too. It was right after the Cole thing or around yeah. the same time. That's right. uh, he hit a bomb against Giolito in June and yelled, it's not sticky anymore. As he crossed home plate, Giolito said, he's a fucking pest. That's kind of a classless move. If you're going to talk shit, talk to my face. Don't go across home plate and do all that. Just come to me, which not wrong. No, I mean, why? I, I'd rather it be a spectacle. Like Tim yeah. Anderson rounds the bases, talk shit. He needs doing it. It's over. They made a bobblehead of it. They gave it out over the weekend after he walked him off on the field of dreams. People celebrate as they touch home plate. Like that's a classic. Just that's an unwritten rules distinction. 
Like, you're allowed to talk shit to me. But when you do it facing the other direction when you cross home plate, that's when I got a problem with you. It's like, you could you could talk it wherever you want. Like, that's, you know, but again, if, if, John, if Donaldson's on the other team, I'm probably bothered by that. Donaldson's yeah. on my team. I defend him. That's how it goes. Uh, Dustin Pedroia and Kevin Euclid insufferable guys, right? But if they're on your team, you love them. Josh Donaldson, yeah, probably an asshole. One of the league's biggest, <laughs> one of the league's biggest assholes. But you know what? Rallying the Yankees and John Gibbons, the old Blue Jays manager, said it when the Yankees got him. Said it was a great move by the Yankees. The old Yankees had an edge to them with guys like Paul O'Neill. You need more than great players to win. Sometimes you need some volatility. And there's nothing more volatile than knocking a guy off base, just playing hard and starting a little early low-energy brawl at the start of a game after you've already won the previous day's game 15-7. Previous Yankee teams would have, A, punted the lineup, B, acted as if they didn't have to win that game. Fan watching that game, you know, a a fan who's trying to temper expectations watching this series goes, all you got to do is split. Even after you lose on Saturday, it's like, just split. Michael Kopech, tough to hit. Nestor, the Magic's got to run out at some point. Just get, go home, get the split, go to Baltimore. You know, solid weekend. You got your two wins. Yankees don't do that anymore. They go, we lost yesterday. We're going to win this game. It's not going to be particularly close. They, they, they blew the doors off in the Garrett Cole game on Friday after blowing the doors off on Thursday. It feels like just a couple of weeks ago that we were saying, sure, this team's winning and they're getting, you know, they're edging teams out. But the one thing they don't do is blow teams away. And now they, have gotten their bullpen combined with the rain a ton of rest over the last week and a half. Is it going to be enough uh, for the whole 162 game grind? That I don't know, but I do know they're listening to us. And 25 and nine again. It's it's a crazy record to have. We're we're not overstating this. The the teams with at least 25 wins in their first 34 games of a season since 2005. Obviously, gerrymandered a little bit like a Republican district, but since 2005, it's happened four times. And it's the 2022 Yankees, the 2018 Red Sox, who you may remember as being unbeatable. They won a World Series. They went untested all year long. It was incredibly easy for them. That might be nice. 2016 Cubs started 26 and 8, a game worse. 26 and 8, a, a game better. Sorry. What am I talking about? Love those 2016 Cubs. Um, they got tested, obviously, went down 3 1 in the playoffs, but ultimately won the world series as well. And the 05 white Sox went 25 and nine. Those are your four teams. You got three world series champions in there and the 2022 Yankees. So again, not done, uh, but all the stats indicate the Yankees have set themselves up extremely well. And uh, this hellish, uh, you know, never ending stretch extra more, more games than days, you know, for the Yankees after all those rainouts, what are they going to do? They have two losses. They took two out of three from the Rangers. They took three out of four from the White Sox. That's what we've got so far. It's been it's been fun. Uh, and, and they two-game swept the Blue Jays yeah. in there, too. They had a little Blue Jays sandwich. Uh, Toronto has ha- bragged about never losing a series four series ago and then have not won a series since then. Four straight so, they've lost. Four straight. Four <laughs> straight series losses. Um Again, though, the Yankees being one of four teams to have this winning percentage, the Yankees being an upper echelon club, the Yankees being, you know, having the attitude advantage and the on-field advantage, MLB pundits are getting bored. Yeah, They don't know what to talk about. The stat head guys are like, I don't understand. The Yankees are leading in every pitching stat and every hitting stat and every pitching metric and every hitting metric. And even Joey Gallo's hitting now. We don't have any more punching bags. And so Brian Kenny of MLB Network, 
went back, it doubled down, tripled down, turned the car around, uh, brought us back to midway through 2018. Start talking about Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, question whether Stanton was a winning fit for the New York Yankees at this point in time. Uh, ignoring, you know, trying to bring the big contract into play, ignoring the fact that Stanton's contract, partially funded by the Marlins, is basically the lower level of what a superstar gets these days. It's not that much money. It's certainly a contract on the books. You got you got to pay it, but it could be much worse. And the crux of Kenny's argument was he doesn't hit in the playoffs because he doesn't hit upper echelon pitching. Now, if you want to say he doesn't hit in the playoffs while ignoring 2020 playoffs and the 2021 playoffs, I mean, you can you can you can ignore two data points if you really want to. And if you want to do that, what you should probably say is that, well, there were no fans in the stands for the 2020 playoffs where Stanton hit 286 with two bombs in the first round and 316 with four bombs in five games in the ALDS. And last year, of course, went three for four with a homer and two near homers in the wildcard game at Fenway Park, which is as hostile an environment as it gets. If you want to ignore 2020 because there was nobody in the crowd, you can do that. But Kenny's argument was that there he didn't hit upper echelon pitching, which Tyler Glass now, he hit a three-run homer off in that series. You're not going to get more upper echelon pitching than the 2020 Rays. That was kind of like their whole deal. Uh, and so if you want to slander Stanton, go for it. But he doesn't hit in the playoffs is not going to work. He doesn't hit top-tier pitching is not going to work at this point. And his contract is unwieldy. I mean, yeah, maybe to the A's or the Blue Jays, but it 13-year, $325 million deal, it, most of that is gone and some of that is being paid by the Miami Marlins. That's just, in terms of AAV, that's just not, it's a $25 million a year contract, which for Giancarlo Stanton's elite playoff performance and regular season dominance and performance in the clutch and reinvention of himself the last year and a half, I think you pay that. And I don't really know why Brian Kenny is doing this segment now. Of all times to do it. And I am the number one resident asshole who had gotten on Giancarlo Stanton over these last two years because the frustration mounted. 2018 was a great season for him. He picked up the Yankees. The trade looked to be fully worth it. When Aaron, he, when Aaron Judge goes down, he, he leads the offense uh, through those tough stretches. Um, then 2019 comes. Injured the whole year. But, and you want to talk about out in the playoffs, he hits that home run against the Astros in the ALCS in game one, and you're like, holy shit, this is sick. This is if we have him, oh, my God. And then he gets injured again. So, uh, once again, hits in the playoffs on the road in a hostile environment. And I know it was one game. It, it wasn't much, but it was one game. Or, or, but it was a home run in, on the road in, in an ALCS game. Um, so, then he gets injured again. Frustration mounts. 2020, injured again. Frustration mounts. Comes back for the playoffs. Dominates that race series, but all for naught because the rest of the offense goes silent. The pitching chokes. You lose the playoff game. You lose the playoff series in agonizing fashion. And when it flips to Aroldis Chapman blowing that game, the odd decision making to use uh, Davey Garcia as an opener and Garrett Cole just not being able to blank the Rays in game five. Yeah, there's a lot of negativity surrounding that. You're not really thinking about John Carlos Stanton's postseason performance. Then you have 2021 where he struggled throughout the first three months of the season, probably through July. He was still OPSing in the seven, 
80s, I think, at that point, which is bad. Had some, had some clutch hits that that national series stands yeah. out. I mean, it was not like his series, his season was a complete wasteland, but no, you no, were hearing you were hearing it again. Yeah. Yeah, but two, he had and then he bliss a blistering two months where he literally carried the Yankees. He got them to the playoff positioning. And then he has a great game at Fenway in the in the AL wildcard wild game. And once again, the rest of the lineup goes silent and there's not really much to to make of it. So um, the narrative around Giancarlo has switched, um, at least in my opinion, from someone who di- I didn't really, I mean, the trade happened and I was like, holy shit, this is cool. But I was like, do we really need this? I don't know if this is like, we probably could have just used a couple more pitchers and this offense would have been fine. It kind of operates on autopilot. Um, and then I got mad because he has a big contract. The Yankees will use that as an excuse to not spend, or they'll have to get creative and do a Donaldson type deal this off season to avoid adding more to the payroll. So there's a lot of other circumstances here that allow fans to get frustrated. But what Giancarlo Stanton's done since the second half of last year and even his entire 2018 campaign, when he's not injured, he's been great. And then the argument here is like, he's not barreling the ball. He's, I mean, in general, he barrels the ball for his career at, at a, I mean, I mean, he, well, he barrels the ball at a 17% rate for his career and he has a hard hit percentage over 50% for his career. And that's like, usually that's good enough. You know, if you look at baseball, Samant and Statcast, um, that's usually good for like top 20 in the league. So you, your entire career, you're hitting top 20 in the league and you're getting paid whatever money it is. Seems to be worth it to me. Um, I get the warts on Giancarlo. He doesn't really work at bats. Um, his strikeouts are really ugly. Um, his OBP and batting average, there's really no, there's, there's no disparity. It's almost the same. The disparity is with his, his slugging percentage and the, and, uh, his exit velocity where you, where you're like truly wowed by his performances. And again, like you said, you could have made this argument. You could have spent the first three months of last season making this argument being like, this was a bad trade. This is not working out for the Yankees. Now they have to go out and acquire more hitters at the trade deadline because the in-house guys who are, you know, it's supposed to be judge and Stanton one a and one B, however you want to flip it is not getting the job done. And you're, you're having a, you're, you're having a tough go of even staying afloat in the division. Like, yeah, bring out the argument, then make it viral. Then don't go viral when the guy is second in the league in, um, in barrels per plate appearance behind only Aaron judge with 16. Um, and he's, and he's hit what the, he, he has among the most hits like 95 miles an hour off the bat or something like that. Um, so, and you want to talk about barrels, his barrel percentage, this, or his, uh, yeah, his, his, uh, hard hit percentage this year has been, um, uh, 55.1, which is above his career, which is 5% points above his career, uh, average and is sixth in all of the league. So, and again, the only people he's trailing is, is Aaron Judge, Wilson Contreras, Jordan Alvarez, Christian Yelich, and somehow Tommy Pham's in here too. But of all the times to make this argument, and of all the times to go viral for a segment that is completely blasting a player, when the Yankees are the best team in baseball at the moment, I don't know how you pick this time. I don't know how MLB Network runs this segment, but um, once again, it's the Yankees hate. They get, you got to find an angle to dislike what the Yankees are doing or try to invalidate the success. Um, after you had all of, oh, you had a, you had a fruitful, the haters had a fruitful last four or five years choking in the postseason, doing all doing falling way below expectations during the regular season, 
and you're going to pick now, 25 and nine, this is when you're going to pick it when they're outpacing every other team. And it's as clear as day. Even the Dodgers are like, the Dodgers are supposed to be the best team in baseball. The Dodgers don't look that special to me. They have, they, they look like more like the 2021 Yankees than really anybody at this point. They have so many contributors who should be above average that are way below expectation. Pitching starting to get a lot of injuries. You lose three or four at home to the Phillies who are like, they're kind of profiling as, as the, the quintessential underachiever. So timing here is just so poor, terrible. The Dodgers definitely do feel like a team where no one's going to believe us that they're not that yeah. hot until the season. It's like last year with the, it's exactly like last year with the Yankees. Once they get eliminated, it's like, we tried to tell you, they yeah. don't have, they don't have the, the it, whatever it is, they don't have it. And it's like, Oh, well, I guess thanks for opening my eyes. Like, the Dodgers right now are Clayton Kershaw gone, uh, Julio Arias, Walker Bueller regressing because they pitched career highs in innings last year by a hundred, yeah, hundred twenty. I mean, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens there. You can't write them off, but it does feel like the twenty twenty one Yankees. Brian Kenny just gets on this show every day. It's so funny to watch him lose that. Like he had this cachet as like the stats guy. And now yeah. all of a sudden he's like the cocky guy. He's just like, oh, what a Jacarl State trait. When you get to the bottom of it, it's not as good as you thought. It just isn't. It just the numbers aren't there. It's just not as good. And it's like, weren't you the guy telling me that barrels are the most important thing in the world, and that hard hit percentage is the most important thing? And now it's like, but Jacarl State, there's something else wrong with him. There's something imperceptible. Almost like he can't hit upper echelon playoff pitching. And it's like now you're telling me the eye test matters. Like what the fuck is it, Brian Kenny? Like. <laughs> He, nobody gives you harder hit balls than Giancarlo Stanton. You're like, actually, when I was saying that before, I was lying. Now it's all about feel for the game. And he doesn't bunt enough. It's like, well, then what are we doing? Um, Brian, he also used 2020, which was a 60-game season where Stanton played like eight, nine games. And he used the first month and a half of this season to weave it into a thing of like counting stat base, where it was like he had – 33 homers during this stretch and only 18 during these seasons. And it's like, these seasons are shorter. There's less games in here. <laughs> Brian. Brian. Um, best of luck. To, you're, you have a very fine program. You have a national television platform. Uh, Jerk Carlos did and hit some FU Brian homers on Thursday. Friday, he, uh, he went off this weekend, as he has been for basically a calendar year at this point. He leads the league in average exit velocity, by the way, 97.4 miles an hour. Only person behind but him. That'll, but that won't last. But that, that'll last. regress because yeah, he's, he's on the Yankees, so that won't last. Uh, <laughs> wait till he faces good pitching. Wait till the Yankees face a good team. They're, t- they're 25 and 9, uh, but, you know, they face the Guardians who stink, uh, but only because the Yankees beat them. They're actually fighting for the AL Central. They face the White Sox who stink, but, again, only because the Yankees beat them. They were preseason World Series favorites. They beat up the Blue Jays, but they stink. You know, they they they, they lost Marcus Simeon and Robbie Ray, who's also bad. Um, so everybody, you know, we <laughs> said that before the season, and everybody's like, no, 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 they're the American League favorites. And then the Yankees beat them, and it's like, well, they don't have Simeon and Robbie Ray. So what are you what are you supposed to do? And then the Orioles, who are ahead of the Red Sox in the standings, the only team to take a series off the Yankees this year. Uh, this week's game should be interesting because the Orioles are, are a little feisty, but the Tigers also beat them up this weekend, so maybe they're bad again. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, the 34 games into the season, still waiting for the Yankees to play a good team, according to the rest of baseball. That all ties back into the first point. Maybe the Yankees are the only good team in baseball. There really might be. Probably not. There might be some other good teams, but 
might just be the Yankees. And uh, one of the reasons they're so good is because Nestor Cortez has the lowest ERA in the American League, dominated the White Sox lineup for eight innings. Uh, when the season started, we were like, Cortez was incredible last year in like little four and a half inning starts, like four and two thirds inning stints. He was like Jordan Montgomery. They couldn't ease him over that finish line. He didn't go more than five that often, occasionally six. Usually dominated in short spurts. He was kind of like the Yankees' secret weapon. Sometimes he was a reliever. He would come in in Domingo Herman's place at Fenway. He, he came in and sort of held a game, held the Red Sox in check for a couple innings. He would come in for four inning spurts or whatever. This year, he, he almost threw a no-hitter against the Rangers last week. The, the debate was, can, can we push him? How far can we push him? He went into the eighth inning. And it was like, oh, my God, he went into the eighth inning? Unbelievable. Sunday against the White Sox, he goes eight full. Out of nowhere, under 100 pitches, and it's just effortless. A 10-pitch inning with three strikeouts, and the only non-strike was a foul ball. So 10 pitches, 10 strikes, three whiffs. He had an immaculate inning already this year. He almost had another one. And it's like, now it's like Nestor Cortez did this against the White Sox. You know, Luis Roberts, Tim Anderson, Andrew Vaughn, and you're like, yeah. No longer am I holding on for dear life, waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's just like he did that against the White Sox, did that against stranded a leadoff double against the Blue Jays, and then didn't give up any runs. Yeah, that's what he does. Uh, it, tragically, though, his his unmasking did come prior to his All Star appearance. Um, Nestor has deleted Twitter. Um, didn't get ahead of the issue. Of course, had a number of tweets from uh, the past. At first. Funny old tweets were being unearthed, like him saying he was the Babe Ruth of P-Star, Star, Star. I laughed. You laughed. We all laughed. Um, and then he deleted his Twitter, and then it was kind of like, he deleted his Twitter because he felt ashamed of saying he was the Babe Ruth of P-Star, Star. Hey, um, that's, you don't have to do that. And then it, he probably had to do that. There's a million tweets from high school uh, using uh, the N-word, using words. Uh, you know, None of them were... Um, you know, malicious necessarily, but any use of that word is malicious. So no one is trying to cancel Nestor Cortez. No one is trying to remove him from society. He was a high schooler acting with internalized high school behavior that shows how bad high schoolers behave and how much of a problem it still is in this country that high schoolers sort of effortlessly did that at the beginning of the 2010s. But this moment of controversy is a rare, unfortunate, very annoying blip on uh, Nestor's incredible season because yeah, that's not behavior that you can't condone that behavior. Um, and he'll have to probably address it at some point, And he'll have to say that was a long time ago and, and move on. And it's not something that he can't get past and he and the team can't get past, mm -hmm. but certainly an unfortunate blemish on this whole thing. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, and it's, it's shitty that this happens whenever someone's just getting into the spotlight. There are just people who are like, let's see what their old social media activity was, and we'll find something here to make sure they look like shit. Um, and the digging goes deep. Not to say that, not to say that Nestor Cortez or anybody who has ever done, you know, we saw it with Josh Hader a couple of years ago. Um, we've seen it with various players. Um, not to say that they shouldn't be held accountable for this, but it's a clear, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a targeted thing to just, you know, bring somebody down um, when, when they're, when they're at their greatest heights. Um, so it's uh, it, the book should answer for it, should have an apology, should say something. This is unacceptable. Um, even to, to put that stuff on social media is, is, I think is a reflection of kind of, 
how poor society is and how poor people have used social media, not realizing how their actions affect other people, how their words um, carry much greater weight, um, regardless of if you're a person of influence or not. Um, you are putting yourself out there. You're putting yourself in a certain light. Um, and whether you think it's joking or not, whether you think it's all in good fun, um, it's not to somebody else. Um, and it's not in the, the, the canon of time. You know, you'll, you'll look back 10 years, you think that something that you said was totally playful and, and non-controversial. And then you grow up and you're like, I said that? I wrote that? Why did I, why would I even think that that was okay? And that's where in that situation now where it's like, okay, Nestor Cortez is 27 years old. I don't think he's saying or doing any of those things, but you know, you're, you're in high school. It's, it's a different story. So uh, nonetheless, um, it's a shame that that came to light during his probably career best outing, eight innings. He's, I don't think he's ever pitched that, that, that deep into a game before. Um, hope to hear an apology from him about this. Hope to put this all in the rear view. Um, but one quick thing on him is that uh, if you want to talk about my Yankee fans' worries, um, it is Nestor Cortez Jr. Why? Uh, because I've been, I was saying it heading into the season – he has a career high 93 innings pitch, which came last year. Um, his next highest, uh, I think, came during his minor league career. Uh, yes, it was. Back in uh, 2018, he threw 115 innings um, at double A and triple A with the Yankees. Um, and then he threw uh, an additional 47 um, in uh, the Dominican Winter League. So if you combine that math guy, what is that? 170 innings, 160 something innings for his absolute career high, which came four years ago. Nestor Cortez is already at 40 innings pitched this year, folks. Um, that's nearly half of what he was able to accomplish in the entirety of the 2021 season. I understand he was used differently. I understand that wasn't in his control, but as Adam just mentioned a few minutes earlier, we saw what happened to the Los Angeles Dodgers last season. Both Walker Bueller and Julio Urias go a hundred innings over their pre. Or what, what was it? It was Urias was a hundred. Bueller was like seventy or eighty. Um, and you see the toll that it takes. You're exhausted by September. The stakes are higher in October, and you don't have your best stuff just because of the the mileage on on the odometer. So. Um, I'm loving what I'm seeing from Nestor Cortez. It's awesome that he, and it's, and you know what else is encouraging about it, which is how I can kind of talk myself off this ledge is that all the peripherals are lining up with the regular stats. He's got a 1.35 ERA um, and, um, and a uh, 0.85 whip. He's got, he's in the 93rd percentile for expected ERA the 89th percentile for expected slugging, 93rd percentile for expected batting average, 90th percentile for K percentage, expected ERA, 2.16, which is top seven in the league, um, expected batting average, 192, top 7% of the league. The only real blemish on his entire profile is his fastball velocity, which we know he's, he's never had, um, and his hard hit percentage and average exit velocity. He's getting hit hard when he gets hit, but – the hits are not translating to runs for the opposition. So um, you like the profile overall. We liked what we saw last year. Now this year is going to be great. Can he elevate it? The answer is yes. He's elevated it now through 40 innings. Can he sustain it? 
That's the next question. That's part two. We're not going to know for a little while, but it's worth keeping in the back of your mind because this is tough stuff, knowing that he could be heading down the road of exhaustion based on his the, the longevity throughout his career. It's a funny one, too, because your instinct is to say, like, well, he's a different kind of pitcher. He's not going to be yeah. you know, succumbing to the same exhaustion as Walker Bueller, who throws 97-98. But losing that half-mile-an-hour off a of Nestor Cortez Jr. fastball is just as damaging, if not way worse, than Bueller going from 97 to 95. Like, mm-hmm. Cortez lives on the edges. He needs perfect location. It's not like his stuff is what gets him his outs. He's deception-based. So if his arm is even lagging, if he's going down from 92 to 91 and a half and he's losing that release point, that's a huge worry because it's not like he's existing on unhittable stuff at this point. He's just an amazing pitcher. So certainly something to keep an eye on. We'd rather not, but we have to. Um, And we'll obviously wait word for before his next start. You'll probably hear from him too, uh, because he will be showcased this summer. At this point, he is leading the American league in the RA. And he could backslide by mid-July, but as of now, he's on your American League All-Star team. And that is a showcase, and that's a showcase for, uh, you know, that's a ceremony. People want to see interesting stories represented. I think odds are pretty high he's in the All-Star game over, like, Clay Holmes, who's someone else who deserves it. But you look at the thing and go, uh, the middle Yankees sixth inning guy has great numbers. Okay. (laughs) Um, okay, great. You know, how, how do I sell that to anybody? Nestor, it's really easy to sell that story. So he's probably going to be in the spotlight a lot more often. He's probably going to get some extra mileage on his arm and we'll have to see how that plays. That is it for this edition of the Inks Yard podcast. We got a lot of stuff in this episode, folks. And one of my personal favorites, because how often do the Yankees go 25 and nine? Certainly not since 2005 hasn't happened again. Only four teams. First three, all world series champions. If you want to hear more, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Drop us a five-star review. Drop us a mailbag question. We will be more than happy to answer those questions. You can drive us. Drive us. You can drive us. Drive us to the store. Uh, Put your mask on if you're an Uber. Uh, Still required. You can join us live on YouTube Mondays and Thursdays, 2 o'clock Eastern time, and obviously live surrounding any major Yankee events. We will also be there. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Weiner. And Thomas Carinante, where can the people find you? At Tommy's underscore takes, everyone. Head on over there. Head on over to the official Yanks Yard uh, Twitter account, at Yanks Yard FS. More importantly, head on over to YanksYard.com. Plenty of content there for you. Our bylines are there. Mostly positive stuff. Mostly positive stuff. Would you look at that? It's the first time you're probably seeing that in a couple of years. So enjoy it while it lasts. Um, Yankees starting a four-game series on the road to finish up this mini- this. Yeah, mini-ish road trip, eight-game road trip in Baltimore against the Orioles. Uh, Man, it'd be good to just take care of business there so we don't have to talk about anything weird on Thursday, which is also a day game. So we'll be live podcasting during that 1235 matinee. And then the Yankees return home. The White Sox are coming back. They'll be back with us in the Bronx this time, and we'll see if they're real or not. Um, So in the meantime, everyone, enjoy the rest of your week. Head back on over to the live stream. Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern. We will see you then. Have a great week. Yes, we certainly will. See y'all then. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.